This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, here to say that, well, our collective concern continues. Concern over the divisiveness, conflict, and violence in our world. So our work here at Peace Talks Radio continues as well. Today, our radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies offers up another compilation show based on a single season of our programs. You'll hear compelling excerpts from programs released in 2018 this time around, ideas that still have relevance as they all reflect on conflict scenarios that still challenge us today, like how to talk to our young people about sex in a way that promotes healthy relationships. With 2017 and 2018 being something of a tipping point in the conversation about sexual harassment and sexual assault, we featured a couple of guests on one of our programs to get some helpful ideas, including Jennifer Weeks, a sexual addiction counselor and author. Healthy sexuality is a beautiful thing, right? A, a healthy sexual relationship is an expression of self. It's an expression of, you know, relationship. It's a, a beautiful thing. So I think, you know, what we need to do is, you know, temper or equalize discussions of the reality of sexuality, which is kind of scary at some level in terms of internet pornography and revenge pornography and all of these other things with teachings of what healthy sexuality is. Um, you know, and that's not something I think that kids get in school, and you know, in sexual education, um, if they even have sexual education in school. Um, and it's not something that parents really talk about, you know, a lot as well. And, you know, those aspects of healthy sexuality, you know, sensuality, equality of power, right in teaching of healthy sexuality is, you know, that equality of power is about consent, one of the things that comes from my work with offenders, and, you know, we think of consent, and it used to be um, no means no, and now, you know, people are, you know, you hear people saying yes means yes. What we do when we're teaching, um, you know, it used to just be in the offender population, but now it's when we're teaching any kind of healthy sexuality is that we'll talk about compliance, coercion, and consent. Um, you know, I think everyone knows what completely non-consensual sexual, sexual contact is, right? Indecent assault, rape, things like that. Um, compliance and coercion are a little more sticky. Um, coercion, for example, is when someone is sexual with another person, not because they necessarily want to, but because they're, they're coerced into it. So, um, you know, if you loved me, you would do this kinds of things. Or, well, you know, all the other girls are doing it. And if you loved me, you know, and you are coerced into a behavior that you don't actually want to engage in. Yeah. And or if you want to keep your job. Right. And that's um, a little more of what we would call compliance, right? And that I'm engaging in something not because I want to, but because if I don't, there are consequences. And so do I want to keep my job? Do I, you know, when you think of all of this stuff going on in the media, do I ever want to work in movies, television, radio, politics, whatever it may be, again? Um, I do this not because I want to, but because there are serious consequences to me, um, you know, if I don't. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, just get another job. We all know that life is not that simple and it's a lot more complicated. So, um, you know, in a, a marriage, you know, you can have these things happen in a marriage or in a committed relationship where maybe one partner is engaging with another um, in a behavior they don't really want to because they're afraid of losing their partner or they're afraid of if I don't do this behavior, my husband will cheat on me. Um, so, again, 
it looks perhaps like they are engaging in this behavior because they want to, but it's really not. It's this, this sort of unspoken threat over their heads. Sometimes the threat is actually verbalized. Compliance and coercion are not truly consent, um, but I think a lot of people confuse that or they think mm. that they are. Consent is just yes, right? Um, you know, and I think consent gets a lot easier when we're more open about sexuality and we understand our own sexuality more and we talk about it. Um, so that's can I, you know, can we, do you want to? Uh, when your 15-year-old daughter comes home and you guys have a good open relationship, you know, my boyfriend wants to, how do I know that I should say yes or no? What's the litmus test? I mean, I think... The litmus test is, is just to, you know, sort of have a conversation with her about it if you can, um, you know, if she's willing and that, you know, how does she feel about it? Does she really want to do it? Is she, is there any fear if she doesn't do whatever behavior the boyfriend wants her to do? Um, you know, and the, if there's fear there that, you know, there's obviously an issue, you know, there shouldn't be fear in sex. And what is she worried about or what is she afraid of if she says no? Right. And we've had this conversation without really speaking about the mandatory uh, discussion about pregnancy and avoiding pregnancy mm -hmm. as being an important part of the conversation beyond the do you want to, do you not want to. Absolutely. And I think part of, of safety and security is also, you know, disease transmission. Um, and part of healthy sexuality, you know, as we teach it, is very much taking care of one's own health, right? Physical health, emotional health. Um, so a lot of that is, you know, around the physical health piece. How do I, you know, if you are going to be um, sexual, if you're going to choose consensually to be sexual, how do you do that safely so that you do not, um, you know, end up with a disease or you do not end up with, um, you know, consequences that you, you know, didn't ask for? That's sexual addiction counselor and author Jennifer Weeks in a January 2018 episode of Peace Talks Radio. In some ways, the emphasis on obtaining consent from a partner for sexual contact is an act of empathy, caring about how a sexual advance will be felt by another. For some concerned about problems like bullying among children and adults, a key is taking steps early to promote a sense of empathy in young people. Our Suzanne Kreider spoke with several experts on empathy, including Courtney Custer, from Albuquerque's Southwest Family Guidance Center, who managed a Roots of Empathy program in local schools. Now, the teacher in this program is very special, so listen to this. So Roots of Empathy is a social and emotional literacy program for elementary school and middle school children, and it's designed to increase students' empathy and reduce bullying and aggression and increase their social-emotional skills. And Courtney, how do you define empathy? So empathy is knowing how another person feels and responding to that, uh, which sounds simple, but there are many children that really struggle with that. They have a hard time identifying their own feelings, and they have a hard time identifying how someone else feels. And uh, that lack of social understanding can contribute to bullying and exclusion and aggression in schools, and so we're trying to combat those things. Courtney, who is the teacher? The teacher is a baby, actually. We introduce an infant to the classroom that will visit the classroom uh, periodically throughout the school year to help the children learn about emotion. Uh, we also have an instructor that guides every class, so it's not just the baby. 
But the baby is our star, and they help the children learn about emotions. There's also a lot built into the program about infant safety and um, infant development. The baby comes in the classroom, and how old are the students in the classroom? The students can be anywhere from kindergarten through eighth grade. Courtney, tell us a story about a student in a classroom who really increased their empathy. So a couple of years ago, I was teaching in a third grade class, and our baby was visiting that day. The baby was seven or eight months old and sitting independently, reached for a toy and fell over and started to cry. And so my job as the instructor is to coach the children, you know, what what just happened? What did you notice? And so I asked the students, can you identify how the baby was feeling? And a little boy raised his hand and said, I think the baby is frustrated because he couldn't get the toy and he fell over. And so then from there, we kind of springboard it to let's talk about times that you felt frustrated and how do you handle it? How do you calm yourself down? How do you not get out of control? And then I asked for examples of frustration. And another little kid raised his hand and said, I'm trying to learn how to ride a bike and I can't figure it out and I'm very frustrated. And then his neighbor right next to him said, well, I live in his apartment complex and I know how to ride a bike, so maybe I can help him. And so that whole exchange, you know, just from seeing the baby play, we got to, you know, increasing their emotional vocabulary, identifying their feelings, identifying how a friend feels, how can we help a friend, how do we calm ourselves down when we're upset. And so that's the power of the baby is whatever's happening with the baby The instructor's job is to use that to guide the children to increase their social and emotional skills. Babies are adorable. They are. I love (laughs) love babies. And I remember seeing this research about how people are naturally drawn in their brains to cuteness. Yeah. And there's something about our brains that help people take care and be empathetic with babies because they think the baby is going to keep the species going. Right. How does it translate? To being empathetic with the baby, or then you're going to be empathetic with a mean, scary adult. Right. So one of the things we're trying to teach children is to be respectful and inclusive of everyone, regardless of who they are. And in school, that can be very challenging. Um, There's a lot of conflict that goes on between students who are different from each other or get bullied or left out. And like you said, babies are just adorable. And everyone kind of connects to their cuteness and their humanity. And one of the things we really highlight in the program is that babies are also nonverbal, but they do tell you how they feel. They tell you with their body. They tell you with their face, with their noises. And we really coach the children to try to pick Uh. up on that. Because if they can pick up on that in a baby, they're more able to pick up on that in themselves and in others. I see. So when I'm older, if I was in the program, I would learn how to read people's faces. And then I would see, okay, well, this guy's upset or this woman's upset. Yeah. And so I should get away. Some children have a really hard time with that. They really, you know, even if you ask them, how do you think your friend is feeling about this? They might have a hard time connecting with that. And if we can kind of build that empathy and that social and emotional vocabulary, then it, it, puts them in a better position to connect to their peers. And one of the things we know about bullies is bullies really do have a difficult time identifying emotion, either in themselves or in their victim. So if I can help them connect, how do you think it felt when you pushed him down the slide and called him names and pointed at him? How do you think he felt? Bullies have a hard time connecting to that. And so if we can increase those social and emotional skills, I'm less likely to be unkind and mean to you because I know what that experience is going to feel like for you. 
the baby is just such a great, uh, such a powerful tool for reading nonverbal cues. Mm. And the kids get really tuned in to how their baby's feeling. You know, how would the baby tell us if they're happy? What would their face look like? What would their body look like? How will the baby let us know if he's feeling sad and needs mom? How will the baby let us know if he's tired? Well, he might rub his eyes. He might yawn. So we're constantly coaching the children to try to pick up on those nonverbal cues because that's what they have to do all day long with their peers. They have to be able to read each other's cues in order to get along. That's Courtney Custer talking with our Suzanne Kreider about the Roots of Empathy program, where school kids watch a baby to learn how to empathize with others. Find out more in our August 2018 episode at our website, peacetalksradio.com. We all crave empathy. We want to be understood. We want people to know and care how we feel in all kinds of environments, but maybe especially by our healthcare professionals. Problem is, over the years, the medical profession hasn't done quite enough to train nurses and doctors how to improve their bedside manner. Our correspondent, Megan Kamrick, talked with several guests about this for her May 2018 episode called Fostering Empathy and Compassion in Medicine. Here she is with Dr. David Rakel, author of the book, The Compassionate Connection, The Healing Power of Empathy and Mindful Listening. You cannot treat suffering with facts. It's impossible. It never works. So if someone is suffering, we have to get out of our own clutter. We have to really drop in uh, into the present moment on purpose, without judgment. That's the definition of mindfulness. And just be with them. And often in that beautiful, special place, the beauty comes out. And sometimes beauty isn't the right word. Uh, I would say authenticity comes out. The the truth comes out uh, of what's really going on and what that person needs most. And so that's the practice is how do we first do this for ourselves uh, in service of others? And we can't do it for anybody unless we explore it in ourselves. You write or you encourage people to turn towards suffering. Yeah. Is that difficult it to is. tell? <laughs> it is. Which would you rather do, go get a massage or turn towards suffering? Everybody's going to go get a massage. But if we're really going to explore those root causes of disease or disease or a symptom, at some point we have to turn towards it. And if we're brave enough to do that together, some wonderful things happen. Things that make your hair stand up on the back of your neck and things that energize us, both of us, because we like to say curing goes one way, us to them, but healing goes both ways. And, and we get just as much out of this as, as the other person does. Well, it's interesting. You write that we're all hardwired to be fixers rather than healers. What's the difference? <laughs> well, there's a big difference. And both are beautiful, right? You know, if you have a broken fever, take me to UNM hospital. Let me be fixed by one of our great orthopedic surgeons. But if you have a fixer who's also a healer, ah, then then you've got it. Then you have the surgeon who comes and sits by your bedside before surgery and puts you at ease and creates positive expectation that, hey, uh, we're going to get you better. And you've got a great team around you to help you succeed and we'll get you back to work and connected to your family. Uh, So fixing isn't a bad thing, uh, but fixing and healing have completely different curriculums and they are synergistic. They build on each other and they help each other. I'm guessing that a lot of doctors do want to have a connection with their patients and authentic conversations, but there are a lot of structural constraints preventing this, such as the time they can spend with them, the documentation they have to do, 
how do you suggest workarounds on these? Yeah, uh, the challenges are uh, particularly when you're or you're paid by how many patients you see. That encourages us to see more patients, uh, and that also creates a barrier uh, between connecting to that person in front of you. And now we have this electronic health record, and we are being asked to uh, put more data in that medical record. And the research shows that we spend twice as much time looking at computers than we do at human beings uh, in the practice of medicine. And that's an unsustainable medical process. And we're exploring ways where we can use that tool to allow more face-to-face time instead of face-to-computer time. And that's being strategic by using other health providers to maybe do some more data entry so we can have time working at the top of our license to really give that other human being what we know best uh, after we listen to the story. More than 50% of physicians in America uh, report at least one symptom of burnout. And I would argue that it's these barriers that prevent this human connection, which feeds us most in this work, is at the root of that uh, burnout. Can you teach empathy? (laughs) That's a big question. I believe yes. But there's also a difference between empathy and compassion. And I'd like to just hit on that a little bit here, that empathy requires me to feel your pain and then do something about it. That's different than sympathy. Sympathy means we cry together and go home. There's no action. Empathy requires action to what I feel from you. Now, that leads to empathy fatigue because when we're dealing with suffering, that's assuming I can fix your suffering which I can't. I can't do that. But compassion is different. That's two people suffering together. In the root essence of that word, we are one. That when I help you, I help myself. And when I have that mindset when I walk in that room, uh, that makes it more fun because I'm going to connect to your story. Once I hear that story, we're going to try and figure out a better path towards your health, and we're going to do it together through dialogue where that word means meaning running through. How do we open up that conversation? And in helping you, I help myself. And the beautiful thing about this work in medicine is sometimes if you have this relationship with your patients, they'll come into my office, I'm supposed to be treating them, and they'll say, Dave, you don't look so good, right? Are you getting enough sleep? And we start to treat each other. There's more with Dr. David Rakel, author of The Compassionate Connection, at our website, peacetalksradio.com. And of course, other guests, too, commenting on building empathy in medicine from our May 2018 episode. We'll have more from our 2018 season of programs when we continue in a moment with Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. More after this break. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. 
I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with highlights from just one season of our radio series and podcast called Peace Talks Radio, which looks at ways we can deal with conflicts in our lives, both outer and inner conflicts. Sometimes an outer conflict, like an experience in war or with an accident or a debilitating medical condition or a sexual assault, can all begin a troublesome cycle of trying to deal with the resulting inner turmoil from a trauma. Our Suzanne Kreider talked with several guests with experience and expertise with this during a Peace Talks radio episode that she titled Healing Trauma. And among the guests was one of the leading scholars and researchers on the subject of healing trauma, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, author of a book called The Body Keeps Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. Many people think that trauma is about, it's a memory about something bad that happened to you. That's not really trauma. Being traumatized means that your body continues to react as if you are in danger. The brain gets shamed, the mind gets changed, and you live in a different reality than the people around you. Dr. Vanderkolk, in your book you write about specific techniques for healing trauma. Mm. What are some of those techniques? One of the most interesting things is that we did a series of yoga studies funded by the National Institute of Health, uh, in which we found that really engaging in a yoga practice seems to be more effective than any medication you can take. Trauma is experienced in heartbreaking and gut-wrenching sensations in your body. Uh, So in order to feel better, you need to learn to befriend your body and to feel safe in your body. Uh, So that's why techniques like Qigong, um, yoga may be very helpful to sort of reestablish a loving relationship to your body. Dr. Vanderkolk, in your book, The Body Keeps the Score, you talk about some different modalities for healing, like um, somatic experiencing, mm-hmm. art, writing, dancing. The first thing I talk about is telling the truth so that. For many people, trauma has to do with secrets, with things that you feel ashamed of having done, Mm -hmm. that you blame yourself for, that you cannot tell people, having been molested by somebody who you can tell other people about, and being able to tell the truth is terribly important. So that's where therapy comes in, that's where writing comes in, is to be able to find words for this is what happened to me, and this is what effect it has on me. The celebration of the singular human capacity to put things into word and to identify things and to have words for it is terribly important. Not to explain things, but just to describe, say, this is how it is. And that's a very important cornerstone. Then there are ways of, so if there's a lot of memories that bother you, Um, something like EMDR can be incredibly helpful to lay your memories to rest with eye movements. In EMDR you evoke what you saw, what you heard, what you felt, but you don't talk about it. And then you set up certain rhythms in the brain, you activate certain association areas of the brain that allow your brain to know, yes, this belongs to the past and doesn't belong to the present anymore, what, sh- what actually comes online is an area in the parietal temporal l- junction, 
that is an area of your brain that gives you a sense of, I own this experience. And so the eye movements can really help people to process the experience and say, yes, this happened to me, but it happened to me a long time ago, and I own this experience now. Memories can be laid to rest fairly easily most of the time uh, with EMDR. Um, but like what we're working with right now is that one of the things that people suffer from if after they get traumatized, they oftentimes deeply blame themselves for the role that they play in their own survival. They may accuse themselves of having uh, played along with what happens. As the field evolves, people become more and more aware of how helpful mindfulness is and learning to really sit with yourself and notice yourself. Mindfulness is only useful if it is accompanied by self-compassion, by feeling loving towards yourself. And then we find out that many traumatized people, incest victims, soldiers, and other people, actually hate themselves for what happened to them. Mm -hmm. And so then the question becomes, how can you put people in a state of feeling deep compassion for what you had experienced back then? And that is a very difficult thing. People used to use hypnosis for that, but right now my colleagues and I are studying MDMA for that. Hmm. Ecstasy uh, can put you in a position that you can lovingly observe the pain inside of yourself without being freaked out by it. Hmm. I said that's not legal yet. We're doing a trial for the FDA to get it legalized. But uh, th these are the sort of directions that we try to go into is how do we make it possible for people to deal with themselves so they can say it's over. More from Dr. Bessel van der Kolk and Suzanne's other guests in the Healing Trauma episode can be found at our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can look for the March 2018 episode. And if you're interested in healing trauma, also check out our July 2018 episode and hear about singer-songwriter Mary Gaucher's participation in a program that seemed to bring some healing to soldiers who were dealing with trauma and PTSD from their military experience. The program was called Songwriting with Soldiers, wherein Mary Gaucher and other talented songwriters teamed up with veterans and veterans' families to work together to write songs that got at the root of some of their trauma. At the same time, Mary Gaucher said she had to do some healing of herself to be able to even work with the vets. I think I, I had a lot of stereotypes in my mind as to who our soldiers are, who our warriors are. In my mind, I had this vision of all of our warriors as gun-loving, right-wing, homophobic straight men. Um, and I haven't met that guy yet. Uh, in five and five years and change of doing this, um, that stereotype uh, was false. And uh, in retrospect, not only was it false, but I feel like an idiot thinking that way. Uh, and so I've gotten to know so many people that have become like family to me through this program. And so I had to overcome the fear of that stereotype, which was a person that I've never met yet. Uh, so music is a beautiful way to to get into another person's emotional landscape. And so as we sit and make songs from 
from the veteran stories, we just there's a love that happens and it's real and, and the connections are very, very strong. Mary took the extra step of making her 2018 album completely out of some of the songs that she's been creating with the vets. It's called Rifles and Rosary Beads. And here's another cut. This one's called Still on the Ride, which Mary co-wrote with Josh Gertz, who was crippled by an injury just a day before he was scheduled to ship back home from Iraq. He was most troubled by losing his best friend while over there. Listen closely to this, then Mary will tell us more in a moment. Looking back now Who the hell knows Where the soul of a dead soldier goes Guardian angels Maybe they're true My guardian angel Maybe it's you I shouldn't be here You shouldn't be gone But it's not up to me Who dies and who carries on I sit in my room I close my eyes Me and my guardian Josh was uh, in a roadside bomb explosion on his last day in Iraq. Oh, and he was—he got traumatic brain injury from the from the explosion, and and he's disabled now. He's in a wheelchair. When Josh and I sat down, uh, his story has so many layers of trauma. I didn't even know where to begin. It was—he has layers on top of layers on top of layers of trauma. There's so much going on with him that I was overwhelmed, and it was just very difficult to know which one was preeminent. But when he was finally able to get down to this deep place of, like, like this happened, that happened, this happened, this happened, and then he reached this place where, and this happened, and I could tell this was the one that hurt him the most. Um, and what he carried that hurt him even more than being disabled was the survivor guilt uh, that that his best friend died uh, in a vehicle crash, uh, and he was uh, supposed to be in that vehicle, but he got out um, because he he wanted his friend to be with his friend and his best friend's fiance. He wanted them to have that ride uh, as a newly engaged couple, and so he got out and said, "No, you guys go on." And, uh, yeah, the accident was catastrophic, and um, there's so much horror around it. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to talk too much about the details because it'll make it'll make me. Uh, I, I can't do it without really getting yeah. too emotional. But well, let me let me ask you this, Mary, about it then, because the key line to me is it's not up to me who lives and who dies, and I'm curious. He said that. Okay, that was my question. I'm curious if that's a line that came from him, or did you? having observed his pain, suggests that that line would be good for his own healing. Well, I, like I said, I go into a trance, but I'm pretty sure he said that or something close to that. He um, he said, looking back now, who the hell knows? Because I asked him, well, why do you think you're here? 
because he kept saying, I shouldn't be here and he shouldn't be gone. I shouldn't be here, he shouldn't be gone. And, and I remember saying, why do you think you're here? He goes, looking back now, who the hell knows? So I just wrote that down, and that's the first line of the song. Then I said, well, who the hell knows where, what, what, who the hell knows where the soul of a dead soldier goes? And he goes, yeah. And we got down this track Mm -hmm. of talking about guardian angels, and I asked him if he believed in guardian angels, and maybe that's why he's here, because I'm convinced I have guardian angels. I know I should be dead, given so many things that I did in my drug and alcohol years. um, I should be dead, and I have guardian angels, and I know it. And I'm thinking this young man in front of me has them too. And he goes, well, it's a good explanation as any. And that's what, what got us down the road with the song, that maybe his friend is, is guardian angel. Well, why not? I mean, and maybe it's not literal that, that, that that's occurring uh, literally, but as a metaphor and as some, some kind of a, a belief to have faith in, it makes as good a sense as anything. And and so, uh, you know, we need our stories in a Joseph Campbell kind of way. Right. Uh, and so he was able to, to go there. Uh, and so we wrote a song about him and his guardian angel. And and uh, he, he, at the end of it, said it's the first time he was able to experience hope since he had come home, that the song brought him to a place of hope. You can hear more from that interview with Mary Gaucher and more from her acclaimed 2018 album, Rifles and Rosary Beads, at peacetalksradio.com. That's our July 2018 episode. On the subject of music and peacemaking, in June 2018, our correspondent Hannah Colton took us into a genre of music that not too many people immediately associate with peacemaking, and that's hip-hop music. One of Hannah's guests, rapper Brother Ali, defended the peacemaking history and potential of hip-hop. What's your understanding of how hip-hop fits into the history of peace or anti-violence movements in American history? Hip-hop is the anti-violence movement of American history. Um, The word hip-hop comes from uh, Africa Bambaataa. Unfortunately, Africa Bambaataa's story has an asterisk by it. Uh, because of some really disheartening allegations about him that people can research if they'd like to. Uh, It's also true that Africa Bambaataa saw uh, in the the Bronx in the mid-'70s, he saw all these street organizations um, that are called gangs now. I don't like using the word gangs. I think that's a dehumanizing term. But in any case, you know, drugs get introduced by the government. Uh, There are uh, congressional hearings about this. It's not a conspiracy theory that crack was specifically introduced into the black community. These groups turn into gangs. Africa Bambaataa is a gang leader in the South Bronx in the mid-70s. And he is the one that noticed that we have this cultural phenomenon of rapping and DJing and graffiti art and dancing. Uh, and then also, you know, that this is a unified culture. And he called it hip-hop. He unified these, and he says the four elements are those, you know, DJing, emceeing, graffiti, art, and breaking. And the fifth element will be knowledge of self. And so he unites them under the umbrella of the universal Zulu nation with hip-hop being the means by which uh, 
you know, these, these, these groups would start to settle their differences. And it really happened. My wife is, is from the South Bronx. You know, her aunts and uncles and parents have, you know, I've sat with these people in their homes and they've told me about this reality in the mid to late 70s and even into the early 80s. There was a period of time where this music and this culture really represented to the people that were at its very foundation of formation uh, was a was a peaceful and was a peacemaking reality. And so they would say that the virtues that drive hip hop are peace, unity, love, having fun. Brother Ali, could you recommend one or two great hip hop peace songs for our listeners to check out? The most important one to me is um, a song called Self Destruction. Uh, KRS One, uh, the, the great, you know, uh, hip hop group Boogie Down Productions, the great MC KRS One, one of the foremost ambassadors for hip hop culture and history. You know, KRS One was a homeless youth who lived in the Bronx, and his DJ was actually a social worker. Uh, Scott LaRock, and they were working on a song called Stop the Violence and a movement about Stop the Violence and Self-Destruction. While they were working on that, Scott LaRock, the social worker DJ that put this this rap group together that changed the face of hip-hop forever, he was actually mediating a dispute between people and he got killed. He got shot. Um, and so KRS-One, uh, as a leader, created a movement called Self-Destruction, Stop the Violence. And they brought together, he brought together all of the big name rappers on the East Coast that he could get in a room at one time. And they made a a song, like this big kind of like, you know, we are the world type of song. Where knowledge is forming, you learn to be self-sufficient, independent, to teach to each is what rap intended, but society wants to invade, so do not walk this path that they laid, it. There was a book that came along with it, and a lot of good was done, and so on the West Coast, there was a, uh, a, an effort that was uh, inspired by that called We're All in the Same Gang. So... These are two that we can point to immediately. I also would say that there's one that women did, headed by Queen Latifah, called Ladies First. You know, so these are some of the, the, the ones that come to mind, you know, first and foremost. But, I mean, the it would be easy to make a two-hour playlist of songs that are about, you know, peace and peacemaking. You know, the, the tradition is just really rich with that. Maybe we'll ask you to do that sometime, make that playlist. That'd be cool. You must be blind if you don't believe what he listens to this rhyme. Ladies first, take no time to rehearse. I'm divine in my mind, expands throughout the universe. A female rapper with a message to send. The Queen Latifah is a perfect specimen. My sister, can I get some? Sure, Moni Love, grab the mic and get dumb. Yo, praise me not for being simply what I am. Born in L O N D O and sound American. That's a little bit of Queen Latifah and Moni Love. For lots more on the deep dive Hannah Colton took into hip-hop and peacemaking, look for our June 2018 episode online at peacetalksradio.com. And we'll have more highlights from the series when our special continues right after this break.
You're tuned to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. Peace Talks Radio is the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. And this is one of our compilation specials when we serve up some excerpts from a single season of our show. With police behavior and controversial shootings of civilians by police a fairly common news item, a book by a former Colorado Sheriff's deputy caught my eye. The book title was Humane Policing, and the author's name is Darren Spencer. You say in your book that a common approach that officers utilize in the field and are trained to utilize is ask them, tell them, make them. And then you offer nine or ten points that you think might be more useful. Uh, they're on page 11 in your book. Could, could you read through them for us? Certainly. On page 11, on the possibilities, it's uh, addressing the initial perception and reactions of the individuals involved before acting, remaining calm when being tested, receiving and redirecting resentment for law enforcement, starting a conversation to get individuals talking, listening for key factors to improve rapport, having individuals give you leads and help you track down people, maintaining patience and professionalism to change the perspective of individuals and bystanders alike, rewarding positive behavior from both individuals and bystanders, and finally gaining cooperation by giving individuals a moral victory and allowing them to salvage some pride. Let's talk about some of these more specifically. The first, for example, address the initial perception and reactions of the people involved before acting. Well, it's easy to say that if a cop is in your home, you're having a bad day. You know, they're upset, they're emotional, they may be high, intoxicated. When you get there, they're not happy that you're there, even though they called you. And so you got to let them vent. you got to let them address and say, okay, how are they going to respond to me when I show up on scene? And then am I going to get more assertive, or am I going to let them voice their concerns? And that's when the tone of the conversation can go really bad, or it can start to improve. Even your answers are touching on some of the other uh, items that you mentioned in your list, like receiving and redirecting resentment for law enforcement. You kind of alluded to that a moment ago. One of the the points that I like to talk about is an article written by uh, Seth Stalton about the law enforcement's warrior problem. And it talks about how that approach makes us believe that everybody's out to kill us and harm us, where I like to say we are actually the calm in the storm. So you have all this chaos going on, and we're the ones there to bring peace and to bring rationale and our thoughts and bring it back under control. That's our job as peace officers. Well, once you've grounded yourself, then you can attempt to redirect it with the person that you're dealing with, that uh, negative energy, right? Yeah, I was very good at making fun of myself, making light of the profession, and a lot of times they'd be yelling and disrespectful to me and I'd be like you know what I get it you don't like cops I said there's a lot of cops I don't like and I would usually make them chuckle a little bit and actually say okay this guy's a little different humor doesn't always work but it's helpful Um, compassion is is very helpful I try to start a conversation with them something other than why I'm there other than enforcing the law because as soon as they see me as a person that's when they're like okay this guy's just doing his job and he's here and he actually cares and he wants to help me What are other examples of uh, looking and listening for ways to connect with people out in the field? Well, if you're in in somebody's house, you can see pictures, you can see sports memorabilia, you can see anything related to hobbies. Uh, If you're 
um, on a traffic stop, you could be talking about their vehicle, their clothing, anything that you can find common interest or something you can generally talk about that's not why you're enforcing the law. And as soon as you get just that couple sentences of dialogue, that's when they become more receptive to you. I would guess that connecting over kids is good, too. Now, now you have a, a son. Do you ever purposefully try to connect with uh, their kids if you know they've got kids? The people I'm there to serve, they don't care what I think of them, but they care what their children think of them. And I would give them a choice, and I would say, okay, I, I don't want your kid to see me put you in handcuffs. And I would say, you can cooperate with me, and we can go out to, I'll let you hug your kids. You can say goodbye to your spouse. And we can go out to my car and I handcuff you out there. I said, or if you don't want to cooperate, then there will probably be additional charges. You'll further traumatize your kids and your spouse. And you'll end up in the car anyway. Well, and this sounds a little bit like the point you were making in another one of your items. Uh, giving individuals a moral victory, uh, a way to salvage some pride. Uh, say more about that. Yeah, and it goes uh, specifically what you were talking about, the ask them, tell them, make them philosophy. And it goes against that because you're in somebody's house and they're upset and you ask them something, but they didn't hear you because they're upset. And then you're telling them something. And then as soon as you start to back them into a corner and start demanding they do something in their own house, that's when they're like, well, I'm going to go to jail anyway. I'm going to salvage some pride just by taking a swing at a cop. And that's when we got to take a step back and say, okay, how can we help this individual? Whenever safety is not an imminent threat and we walk into a situation with our first thought being, how am I going to help this person? It completely changes the whole dialogue. Links to Darren Spencer's book, Humane Policing, can be found, along with other interviews on this topic, in our April 2018 episode at peacetalksradio.com. Another item that police trainers are starting to build into their curriculum is understanding implied bias particularly for white officers who deal with people of color. Our correspondent Hannah Colton put the whole history of whiteness under the microscope in our November 2018 episode, in part by talking with radio producer John Bewin, who created a multi-part podcast series that he called Seeing White. What's your understanding of racial violence in both interpersonal and structural ways? You know, let me count the ways, right? I mean, because it takes so many forms. And yes, it's it's the, the brutal, brutal history of violence within slavery itself, of course. At one point, I, I, t- I imagine a, uh, a giant scale. If you imagine on one side of the scale um, the bodies of white people killed by black people over the last 400 years in North America, and on the other side, the reverse, the bodies of black people killed by white people, Of course, it's grotesquely out of balance, and white people have committed vastly more violence against black people than the reverse uh, in all these forms. But then also, yes, my colleague Chenjirai Kumanyika, who is my collaborator on the project, talked about the other kind of more diffuse forms of violence, of just the way that inequality and public policy that doesn't address the deep inequalities that come from this history of racism and exclusion how that damages people's lives and shortens people's lives and, and leads to troubled neighborhoods where violence is more likely to take hold. Um, so you could just go on and on, right, including all the way up to things like, um, you know, just the fact that uh, there are growing studies that suggest that the health problems that come with being particularly black but with being a person of color in this white supremacist society that 
that causes stress and high blood pressure and heart disease. So it's, yeah, yeah, violence takes many, many forms. In the final episode of the podcast, I believe you're talking with your co-host or collaborator, Chandraya Kumunyika, and you're saying all it takes to uphold this society that has been founded on white supremacy is for, you know, quote unquote, good white people to go about their lives like business as usual. Can you explain that a little? Yeah. And I think to complete what I said, I think I said um, all it takes for our white supremacist society to perpetuate itself is for good white people to go about our lives being good non-racists. Because the way that we typically think about race in America is as a, it's a problem of personal attitudes and personal behaviors. So the question that we're constantly uh, preoccupied with is, is that individual person a racist or not? Am I a racist or not? Meaning, you know, am I a member of the KKK? Uh, do I use the N-word? Am I mean to people of color? You know, stuff like that, right? But that's not what racism is. It's not that those things don't matter at all. They do. But it's much more a matter of a structural systemic situation that would take a more fundamental change in our institutions. What's a takeaway for listeners in terms of how to take steps towards uh, systemic change on racial justice? Yeah, I think probably the biggest and most tangible things that need to happen probably need to happen at a governmental level. Government policy, the way our institutions function, you know, so just things like, uh, you know, the criminal justice system or what Chandrai Kumanyika called our so-called criminal justice system, the deep structural inequities in who gets policed and who gets punished and so on and so forth, for example, or the education system, the way that we allow ourselves to have this deeply unequal and unequal in a racialized way education system, right? So those kinds of big institutions in our society really need to be rebuilt. But then there are also things like that we consider in the last episode of the of the series, like reparations, um, or um, things that would help address in the present um, the deep inequalities in in wealth that come out of our history. So a job guarantee, or Sandy Darity, who works at Duke here, the Economist has an idea about a baby bonds proposal where children would be given a bond, basically kind of a trust fund. And that would be, you know, if you were historically, like if you were a descendant of enslaved black people, you would get a bigger trust fund than if you're a comfortable white person. And actually, a job guarantee now polls quite well, meaning that it would be sort of like the um, WPA in, in the Great Depression, where anybody who wants a job and can't find one, the government would provide one. These are big, expensive programs. We do a lot of big, expensive things, including a trillion-dollar tax cut that we say we don't have the money for, but we find it, right? So if we wanted to really address the deep inequalities that have come from this history and that persist, um, these are some of the things that we, we could be looking at. So from an individual standpoint, it becomes a matter of getting yourself educated and then maybe thinking, all right, the next time I hear a... Uh, a potential presidential candidate talk about a job guarantee, I'm not going to just roll my eyes and say, that's crazy. We can't afford that. I might actually think about whether that's something that might be worth supporting. 
That's John Bewin, podcast producer of the series Seeing White, talking with our Hannah Colton. That whole November 2018 episode can be found at peacetalksradio.com and is well worth the listen. And we're going to close today's show with part of Megan Kamrick's conversation with peace researcher Peter Coleman from Columbia University, who studies peaceful societies to learn how peace can really be sustained in our world. You know, why do some communities actually have sustainably peaceful societies? There is a colleague of mine named Douglas Fry, who is an anthropologist at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And he has, for about 30 years, studied peaceful societies around the world. He started because people didn't believe that humans were ever peaceful, and and that is, in fact, wrong, that humans were basically peaceful in most of our history. You know, so for a couple of million years on this planet, humans, particularly in hunter-gatherer societies, were peaceful societies. About 10,000 years ago, when human groups stopped and uh, sort of settled in areas and laid claim to areas, you know, sort of where there's good salmon fishing, for example, and started to gather stuff, that's when groups started to begin to attack each other and, and move into war. So war is a relatively new invention for humans. And what Doug has been able to document in his research is that there are many societies, some are more traditional local societies, all scaling all the way up to places like Costa Rica, Norway, Finland, Iceland, Denmark, who are sustainably peaceful societies, who have have chosen peace for 50, 100 or more years. What we argue is that, you know, the international community has been trying to, the UN in particular, has, has been trying to understand how to sustain peace. They've been trying to reorganize their peace building and peacemaking infrastructure at the UN towards the goal of sustaining peace, what they find is that most of what they do is mitigate crises, you know, and try to deal with the more acute problems. And then a lot of what they do in terms of peacemaking isn't sustainable. It doesn't last. And part of what we argue is that, well, one of the reasons why the international community doesn't do that well, or really doesn't even know how to do that well, is because peaceful societies are rarely studied. There are very few academics or policymakers that study peaceful societies. Humans study the things they fear, you know, cancer, depression, anxiety. Those are the things that we put so much time and energy into trying to understand. We rarely study more pro-social or positive um, experiences and environments. It's taken many disciplines decades to, you know, to shift and study things like love and joy and uh, flow at work. And the same is true for peace. There, are, There's peace studies and there are peace scholars, but mostly they're studying peacekeeping, peacemaking, and peacebuilding in the context of war. And what we found is that the conditions that lead to, lead to sustainably peaceful societies are fundamentally different from the conditions that keep nations from sliding back into war. You need them both. You need to understand the things that sort of prevent violence and that mitigate violence and destructive conflict. And you need to understand those things that foster more sustainably peaceful relationships between groups and societies. What are the components of a peaceful society? It's really when members of any one group, take a religious group, any one religious group treats a member of another religious group with sort of respect and rapport and dignity, and that that is um, reciprocated. So when you have that basic dynamic where Muslims treat Hindus 
in more respectful, dignified ways, and you know Hindus re- respond in kind. When you have that kind of recipro- what we call positive reciprocity, it's a basic mechanism that at that level kind of emerges into sort of norms and institutions and taboos about how people and groups treat each other that become sustainable. So what we find is that you need to have, in any kind of community, basically a, a strong ratio of more positive encounters between members of group and a, and a weaker ratio of negative encounters. It doesn't mean that negative encounters don't happen or, or, or shouldn't happen because, in fact, what people and groups learn from negative encounters from one another is, is you know, insights to prevent it or how to work through it constructively. So those kinds of conflicts are useful in terms of helping communities grow and deal with inequalities and injustices. But if you don't have a sufficient kind of context of respect, uh, what we call a, a positivity reservoir between members of different groups, then those negative encounters take over and they really start to lead to more competitive, contentious dynamics. What eventually that does, it, it affects how the groups think about the future, how they plan for things together. It ultimately affects the kind of norms and institutions that exist in that society, how children are socialized to treat members of other groups, how they're educated about their histories in relation to other groups. When you have members of different groups treating each other with respect as opposed to with contempt, then what bubbles up are these norms and institutions and historical memories and plans for the future that perpetuate more peaceful societies. At a time when there is a lot of suspiciousness and enmity and contempt for members of other groups, um, you can get charismatic visionary leaders that sort of step up. And I want to be careful about how we think about leadership, because it isn't always just one great man that stands up and makes this. It's, it's oftentimes a, a group of people that sort of see it together and mobilize it together, men and women, and who are able to make that case and make it in a compelling way and really articulate what that vision is and the benefits of that for, for moving societies forward. More with Peter Coleman and others studying ways to make and sustain peace at peacetalksradio.com. That's our website that has all we've done dating back to 2002. Shows, photos, transcripts, and links to other resources, and a button for you to click on to make a donation to keep our nonprofit work going. PeaceTalksRadio.com. Support comes from people just like you and businesses like a Spinal Health and Movement Center and chiropractor Ruben Ramirez, located in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. My thanks to our team, Suzanne Kreider, Hannah Colton, Megan Kamrick, and Nola Daves-Moses. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.